Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalm 127. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 657, Psalm 127. Having just finished our series on the book of 2 Thessalonians, for the next few weeks, I'm going to be doing a series on family, and I've entitled the series Family Matters, uh, both because family does matter, and also because the family is under assault like never before in our world. And so by God's grace, I hope to address a few of those issues regarding family over the next few weeks. It is a very humbling uh, endeavor to speak on the subject of the family because when you're alone in your study, uh, laboring over the Word of God and thinking about the family and different issues that the Bible says about the family, you see and realize uh, how humble and how short you've fallen in your own life in God's standards. And so I pray it'll be a time of instruction for us over the next few weeks. I pray it'll be a help and an encouragement to us. And there's something in all of these texts for everyone. So just because your kids may be out of the house, that doesn't give you the right to check out. Um, if you're a grandparent, there's truth here for you. If you're just a church member with no kids, there's truth here for you. Because if the church truly is a family... And then we're all in this together. And so the Bible speaks to all of us in that way. So Psalm 127, and this morning I'm going to speak for a few minutes on this subject, the building and blessing of a home, Psalm 127. And this is what the Word of God says. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it, labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Psalm 127 is the eighth psalm in the collection of psalms known as the Song of Ascents. The Israelites used this collection of psalms for their journeys to Jerusalem for three annual pilgrim feasts. And all of these psalms highlight the various facets of the life of a pilgrim, and they have much to say to all of us as Christians today. So why would a pilgrim headed to Jerusalem sing this psalm? Well, normally, families would travel together in caravans when they made their pilgrimages to the holy city. It was a family time as they came to worship. And singing these songs together and to one another would encourage each family member to place their faith and their hope in God. And that's why this psalm speaks so powerfully to families today. Now you'll notice at the top of this psalm in the ascription, this psalm is attributed to Solomon. And this is notable because if you've studied the life of Solomon at all in the Bible, you will learn that he failed in every area in which he writes about in this psalm. And so there is great wisdom and instruction for us in these verses. In fact, Psalm 127 is often referred to as a wisdom psalm, a psalm that instructs us in the priorities and practices of a family that is forging itself 
in faith. And in this psalm, Solomon instructs us in establishing a godly family with children who are used by God to further his kingdom. Now, the dominant theme of this psalm is dependence upon God. And the goal of this psalm is to show us how to see both family and work from God's perspective so that the daily grind of life is defeated. The daily life of work and family can often lead to frustration and it can end up becoming a little more than a daily grind that leads us with frantic lives and empty homes. But with the perspective and wisdom of this psalm, we have the opportunity to change the direction of our lives and our homes. This psalm reminds us that if we don't depend upon the Lord, and if we don't order our lives and our homes around Him and His Word, we could end up in the end living a life with no significance. For we all, we all must depend upon the Lord for the building and the blessing of our homes. Would you notice with me, first of all, this morning in verse number one, the building of a home. Solomon uses two conditional statements in this verse. And he uses these statements to make a contrast between a life of dependence and a life of independence. And notice carefully what the text says. It does not say that builders shouldn't build, and it does not say that watchmen shouldn't watch. Solomon, in verse number one, stresses our God-given responsibility, but he stresses our God-given responsibility by uniting it with complete dependence upon the Lord. Solomon is not saying that we shouldn't work, Rather, he is saying that even the best and the hardest work, as well as the best and the latest security measures, will be useless unless the Lord is building and unless the Lord is watching. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on this psalm, crystallizes the theme of this psalm, saying, quote, a Latin motto says, Nisi Dominus Frustra. It comes from the first words of this psalm, and it means, without the Lord, frustration. He goes on and says, it could be attached to the lives of many who are trying to live their lives without the Almighty God, end quote. Without the Lord, frustration. And according to Boyce, any activity attempted without the Lord will lead to frustration. And that is exactly what Solomon is teaching us in verse number one. Without the Lord building the home, frustration. Without the Lord securing and preserving the home, frustration. So notice how he describes the sustaining of this home in verse number one. He says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Now, the word house is an ambiguous term in the context of this psalm. It has led scholars over the ages to define it in many different ways. Uh, I am defining it this morning as the domestic life of a family. Unless the Lord builds your home, unless the Lord builds my home, unless the Lord builds your family, unless the Lord builds my family, frustration. He uses a metaphor in this verse to teach us that God's involvement in our homes is absolutely essential unless the Lord builds the house. The language here is not that the Lord literally picks up a hammer and he literally picks up nails, but rather that God is the architect of the home. God is the foundation of the home. God is the builder of the home. That a home is built around the principles of the word of God. And you'll notice in verse number one, 
the word Lord. And notice how it's used in verse number one in all capital letters. It is the word Yahweh. It is the word for the covenant-keeping name of God. Solomon is describing God as the covenant keeper to his people. And unless this covenant-keeping God becomes the architect and the builder and the foundation of your home, notice what he says in verse number one, it will be vain. And you can trace this word through this psalm, and Solomon uses it three times. It literally means it'll be empty, it'll be senseless, it'll be useless, it'll be meaningless, it'll be futile without the Lord. This word vain, it is emphatic, it doubly emphasizes the sheer folly and foolishness and failure of our efforts to build and establish a home apart from the Lord himself. And so with all of this language, Solomon is teaching us and reminding us that our labors and our efforts for our home are good, but our hard work is absolutely no substitute for the divine presence of Yahweh in our home. That apart from his presence in our homes, in our lives, our building, our work, our efforts, our labor, our striving will be empty. It'll be futile. If God is not the source of the building, no matter how much labor is exerted, the labor will be in vain. He must be a part of every endeavor in our home for our homes to have eternal value. Alan Ross, in his commentary on Psalm 127, defines this, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain this way. He says, we may say that the Lord builds the house if, number one, the people build it by faith in the Lord's provisions for it. Number two, that if it's built according to the will of God. Number three, that it's built in a way that pleases God. Number four, that the home is dedicated to the use and the purpose of God. And number five, that the home is given to God for his glory and for his accomplishment. That is what it means, according to Ross, that a house is built by the Lord. And so, friends, whether it's Solomon's house, whether it's David's house, whether it's your house, whether it's my house, if God's presence is not involved in the building of the home, it will be vain. And you understand the point of the verse. Solomon is teaching us that it is absolutely possible to build a life and to build a home that is full of activity. It is full of work. It is full of exertion. Listen, it is full of good things. And yet, in the end, it could be empty. And it could be frustrating. And so he's actually, with the language of this verse, issuing us a warning against our frantic efforts apart from God's dependence. It means that we can plan. It means we can work. It means we can strive. We can worry and we can strain all we want. But if a relationship with the Lord is not the very center of our homes, and if obedience to the word of God doesn't guide our every decision in our homes, no amount of additional effort on our part will keep our homes from falling apart. Apart from the Lord, it's frustration. John Piper summarized 
Solomon's words in verse number one very succinctly and with conviction. You may end up building a monument of futility. Can you imagine coming to the end of your days and looking back in the rearview mirror of your life at your home and your family and saying you built something that was futile and empty, no eternal significance? He speaks not only of the sustaining of building this home in verse number one, he speaks of the security of building a home. Look at what he says in the second statement of verse one. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. In Solomon's day, there were no satellites. There was no advanced warning systems. A watchman would stand guard on the city wall. And the job of the watchman was important because the city's security and the security of the homes that made up the city and the families that made up those homes depended on the vigilance of the watchman. But Solomon reminds us in verse number one that the watchman's alertness was no guarantee for ultimate security. For he says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman will stay awake in vain. Solomon is saying that if the watchman stays awake all night without dependence upon God, his protective oversight can end up being useless and the city could end up being overthrown. And again, the idea is not literally that God takes up a sword and God takes up a shield to defend the houses or the city. Rather, his invisible hand guards the homes and it guards the occupiers of the homes and that he protects the home from the evil influences that would harm it. Solomon is teaching you and me that alert watchmen are no substitutes for God, that ring doorbells are no substitute for God in our homes, that guard dogs are no substitute for God in our homes, that, listen, guns are no substitute for God in our homes. Every single one of us needs God's divine protection over our homes. The most advanced security systems available to us cannot protect the souls of the people under your roof from the enemy of their souls. Only God in His divine power can protect and secure the home. And I would remind you this morning, friends, of what Jesus said about the enemy of our souls in John chapter 10. He says that the enemy has come to steal, he has come to kill, and he has come to destroy, but that I have come to give you life and to give it more abundantly. And that's why we need the divine protection of God over our homes. Solomon is teaching us that God is the true protector of the city and God is the true protector of the home. And without God and his protection over our homes and over our lives, our security is in vain. I've quoted John Calvin many times from this pulpit. And in 1557, 1557, this is what he said. Politicians and intellectuals discuss at length and in depth how to govern a nation and control crime. But they omit the principal point that however brilliant their policies, they will achieve nothing unless God blesses their endeavors by using them as instruments to do his will. Thus, the Holy Spirit rebukes the folly of assuming good management will bring genuine happiness to a nation when a government neglects to give God his rightful place on his divine throne, end quote. Unless the Lord protects the house, unless the Lord protects the city, unless the Lord protects the nation, all of the protective efforts are in vain and empty. He goes on and he says this, Solomon's burden is that it is when God is given his rightful place in the honor which is his due, 
that the divine blessing sheds its luster on every part of life, both public and private. Houses aren't built without builders. Cities aren't secure without watchmen. But neither builders nor watchmen can adequately fulfill their responsibilities without complete dependence and reliance upon the Lord. Derek Kidner, who is an expert on the wisdom literature of the Bible, specifically Psalms and Proverbs, summarizes Solomon's point in verse number one, saying this, The house and the city may survive, but were they worth building? That is a good statement to ponder, friends. Your home may survive. The city may survive. The nation may survive for a time. But was it worth the building? So verse number one demands us to ask ourselves that in light of eternity, how much of what we are pouring our life and our energy and our time and our resources into will be useless at the end of the age? We have to ask ourselves if our building efforts and if our preserving, protecting efforts will stand the test of time and will leave anything of eternal, significant value. We have to stop and pause and ask ourselves this morning if we're depending upon the Lord to be the husbands and the wives and the parents and the grandparents that he's called us to be. We have to ask ourselves what kind of building is taking place in our church to come alongside of the families in our church and support what they're doing at home. Are we dependent upon the Lord in these things? Or do we think we have it all figured out? That we're good. That we don't need his help. Well, Solomon not only instructs us in the building of the home, in verse number two, he instructs us in the balance of the home. And he gives us paradoxes here. He talks about work and he talks about rest. And at the beginning of verse two, he speaks of the balance of a home regarding work. He says, it's vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. And could I just confess to you at the beginning of my comments here, I wish this verse weren't in the Bible. Is so convicting. And notice the language. It's the word you. He's speaking to you this morning. He is speaking to every single person that reads this psalm. He's not just talking to the preacher. He's not just talking to the person on the back row or the person on the front row. He's talking to you. The Holy Spirit of God has taken His Word and He's taken up residence right there in your pew this morning. And the person that Solomon describes in this verse is a workaholic. They're working themselves to exhaustion. Notice how he describes it. They rise up early and they go late to rest. Now don't misunderstand what he's saying. He's not condemning hard work. Hard work is valued throughout the Word of God. He is not condemning hard work. But he is warning against being a person who burns the candle at both ends. A person who neglects their personal health. A person who neglects their family. And listen, a person who fails to trust God with their work. That's what he's warning against. He's teaching us that the kind of restless activity that he's describing here is a recipe for disaster. And listen, it's a form of idolatry. Yes, work can become an idol in our lives. And Solomon is warning against not trusting God with our work. And the reason we don't trust God with our work is because we like to be in control of our work. We like to be the God of our work. And Solomon is reminding us that when we are the God of our work, that is another form of idolatry. It is another form of false worship. 
It is something that dishonors and displeases God. And can I remind all of us this morning that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ reminds us that God's Son, Jesus Christ, came to set us free from worshiping anything other than Him. He set us free from worshiping work. He set us free from climbing the ladder of success. He set us free from worshiping money in our paychecks and our retirement accounts. He came to set us free from all of the idols in our lives, including all of the idols that surround our work and our livelihood. Christ's death on the cross sets us free from anything that would keep us in bondage, anything that would keep us from fully loving him with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. And friends, Jesus Christ rose again from the dead so that you and I would have a calling from God, first to have a relationship with Him through God's Son in salvation, and secondly, to have a vocation in which we could serve God and give Him glory through our living and through our work and through our efforts so that others could see how great and wonderful this glorious God is that has saved us through the way we work and serve Him with our hands. But He did not come to save us so that we could prop the idol of work up in our lives and worship it instead of him. There's a warning here for all of us. If we make work our idol, we'll never enjoy it, and it will never bring lasting satisfaction to our lives because we'll be looking to our jobs, we'll be looking to our paychecks, we'll be looking to our retirement accounts, We'll be looking to our resume and our success for satisfaction instead of looking to God through his son, Jesus Christ, for satisfaction and fulfillment. Do you see what he says in the text? In verse number two, he says, It's vain to rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. The bread is what you fill yourself with. It's what you feast on from the fruit of your labors. And why is it that the things that always taste so good are the worst for you? Put a good loaf of bread in front of me and I am all in. Forget about anything else on the table. Right? And yet it's probably the worst thing on the table that I could be consuming and putting into my body. And here in this language, he's saying you're, you're eating the bread, you're eating the fruit of what? Anxious toil. The word toil takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 19, where God pronounces a curse as a result of Eve's sin and says that she will now experience toil and painful labor in childbearing because of her sin. And Solomon is equating that language with the toil of anxiety in our hearts surrounding work. That because of sin, work has now become a toil. We have to deal with thorns and thistles and weariness and struggle. And all of this toil to get our bread, it's full of anxiety and worry. We're nervous about our work. We're worried about our work. We're worn out about our work. We're fearful about it and because we approach our lives of work in this way of idolatry we become out of balance and it leads to frustration in our homes there was a time in my life in the early days of ministry when I was completely frustrated with work not when I was working here Just make that clear so you don't make any assumptions and I was struggling with my job. I was struggling with my ministry. I was struggling and spending time with the Lord. And one day I overheard my wife with my two little kids at the time saying, we need to pray for daddy because we can tell when he's not spending time with the Lord. How would you like to hear that? from your spouse. Maybe you have heard that. Do you know what she was saying in that statement? That I was so frustrated with what was going on in my life outside of my home. Listen, 
It was affecting what was happening inside of my home. And that's the warning, friends. That's the warning. You're fooling yourself if you think what's happening outside of your home doesn't affect what's happening inside of your home. There's a direct correlation. So I want to remind you this morning that your work is a calling from God. It is not a calling for you to be God over your work. I want to remind you this morning that your work isn't just a job. God has given you a divine commission to serve Him through that job that He has given you for His glory. And I want to remind you this morning that your work is an expression of your love and worship to God. It's what Paul said in Colossians 3.23, that you're to do whatever you do, working heartily to the Lord because you're serving God, not your boss. Right? You're serving God, not your boss. You're serving Christ. And so it's a warning about work. And then at the end of verse number two, it's a warning about rest. He says, for he gives to his beloved sleep. The psalmist reminds us that sleep is a gift from God to his beloved. And the language here, his beloved, is actually found in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 25. It's where we get the name Jedidiah. It was a name that was given to Solomon by God, Solomon's personal name from God. And Solomon's saying, God gives his beloved rest. And what God gave Solomon is what God gives you and me. Do you see that? That the gift of rest, the gift of sleep, is actually a gift from God Himself. That in the midst of our toil, in the midst of our striving, in the midst of our work, in the midst of our building, God provides for His beloved by giving us the rest that we need. But when our life is out of balance... And when we're living dependent upon ourselves and not dependent upon God, we miss out on the very gift that God has given us to replenish us so that we can build some more. He gives us the gift of rest and sleep. And yes, that even includes in midlife and old age when it becomes increasingly difficult to sleep. You understand what I'm talking about if you're in that age category. If you don't, one day you will. And then we can talk about it. So I want to remind you of three truths about sleep this morning, friends. Three realities of it for our lives. Number one, when we recognize sleep as God's good gift, sleep becomes an act of faith. It means that when you lay down in bed at night and you put your head on the pillow, you are saying, I am not God. And that whatever I've done with the work of my hands for today, it must be enough and I have to leave all of the rest of it in God's hands. I'm not in control. I can't fix everything. I can't be everything. I'm going to rest because God is in control. And when you approach it like that, your pillow becomes soft. Number two. Oh, this is good. I remind myself of this often. God never sleeps so that we can. Psalm 121, verses 3 and 4. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God doesn't sleep so that we can. And here's my favorite reminder. Number three. As God gives us sleep, he's working out his blessings upon us. Now listen. This... This verse that I'm about to give you is in the context of sowing the Word of God, which is a form of work. And when I discovered this truth in these verses that I'm about to read to you, it was so liberating. Mark chapter 4, verses 26 to 29. Jesus is teaching his disciples about the meaning of the parable of the soils. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Listen to what verse 27 says. He sleeps and he rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows and he knows not how. I love that. 
Listen to what Jesus said. The sower gets up. Night and day, he gets up, he works, he sows the word of God into all the soils. He works all day, he goes to bed, he gets back up the next day. You know what he does? He sows the seed of the word of God again, and he does it all day, and then he goes to bed, and he gets back up the next day. On and on and on. Now insert your work in that parable. And one day, he gets up to sow seed. And it's sprouting, and it's growing, and he doesn't know how. And do you know what the point of the parable is? While he was sleeping, God was working. And God took the seed that he sowed, and God blessed it and multiplied it, and God gave the growth. And the analogy to work is simply this. You get up and you work and you serve for the glory of God. And you go to bed because you're not God. And while you're sleeping, God is working. And you trust God to work in the fruits of your labors. That's God's economy of work. Chuck Swindoll reminds us that the race to keep pace with technology, the pressure to be involved in every extracurricular activity imaginable, and the drive to possess more and more stuff all splinter off valuable hours for investing in what matters most at home, end quote. Did you hear that, friends? You can become so full of anxious toil, building and striving and running all over the place. And in the end, you'll have nothing of eternal value to show for it. Because you're not depending and trusting on the Lord. And you have to ask yourself, have you bought into the mindset of the world of what your family should look like? That you've got to have the latest and greatest. You've got to be in all the activities. You've just got to run ragged. Or is there a different approach? Is there a different way? Is there a different way to order your family and find balance between work and your responsibilities and resting in the Lord? Well, he not only instructs us in the building of the home and in the balance of the home, finally, he instructs us in verses 3 through 5 in the blessing of the home. There's a transition that takes place in this psalm from verses 1 and 2 to verses 3 through 5. We move from the emptiness and futility of building and protecting without the Lord to the fullness of a quiver with the Lord. And this is the transition that ties the whole psalm together. And in verse number 3, he speaks of the reward of the home. He says, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. And listen, just in case you've tuned out on what he said in verses 1 and 2, look at how he begins verse 3. Behold, wake up, pay attention. I'm getting ready to tell you something significant and important. Take notice of what I'm about to tell you. And what should we take notice of? This monumental statement about our families in verse number 3. Children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. He is teaching us that children are a highly valued prize. They are not a burden. He is teaching us that children aren't mistakes, children aren't accidents, children aren't interruptions, children aren't burdens, children are blessings. Children are a gift, a heritage from God. Children are a gift of mercy and grace from the God of the universe to your home. They are an expression of God's love, God's mercy, God's goodness. And they bring great pleasure to a home. The word heritage literally translates gift or inheritance. It's a translation of the Hebrew term that means property and possession. That which is shared or assigned by God. 
And Solomon's reminding us that that's exactly what children are. They are the Lord's possession and they belong to him. And he graciously, lovingly assigns them to homes as personal gifts from God. He says there are a reward from God. This doesn't mean that children are a reward because we're morally good people. You know that's not true. God doesn't give us children because he sees what wonderful parents will be. Because you know that's not true. The gift of children is not a matter of merit. Which also means the gift of not having children is not a matter of punishment or demerit. What Solomon is teaching us is that the makeup of our homes depends entirely upon the sovereignty and the graciousness of God. That God gives to our homes as He wills, as He sovereignly chooses, that fertility and infertility are in His sovereign hands. And that our homes are made up exactly the way he wants them to be made up for his purposes. And I want to say to you this morning that even though your home may not have children, would you hear your pastor this morning? That if you're a part of the body of Christ, there is an influence to be had in your life on the children of this church. I could give you by name and I won't do it this morning because they would be embarrassed and get mad at their pastor. But I could give you by name people over and over who to this day, after 18 and a half years, have had major influence on my children and they don't live in our home. All children are a gift of God. And I want to say to you, church, because I'm sure there's nobody in here that would ever think this, but just in case there is, I just want to say to you, out of love from your pastor's heart, when you hear a baby cry, when you hear a child get upset, and you see parents struggling, and if you say something in your soul, like, what are they in here for? Why can't they keep them quiet? They don't know what they're doing. Shame on you. Can you just imagine what the church would be like if you didn't have the sound of a baby's cry? If you didn't have the sound of a little child who got upset. I've been in churches that don't have those sounds. I know how empty that feels. Like instead of condemning them, like maybe you should go sit beside them and help them. That was just a side note, not in my notes. Wasn't planning on saying that. We need to be reminded of that. Every time we hear a child's cry. You know what we should be saying to ourselves? Are you listening? You know what we should be saying? They're a gift from God. And God sovereignly placed them in this church for this time. And I can have an influence over their life. Well, they're a blessing from God. And with their parents, children are among the vital foundation blocks of a healthy society do you understand that this morning, church? Children are the foundational blocks of a healthy society. And God's blessing on the city begins with his blessing on the family. And where our families stand is ultimately where our cities will stand. And somebody needs to stand up for these kids and care for them because the world wants their souls. And if they can get their souls, they'll get the families. And if they can get the families, they've got the cities. And if they get the cities, they've got the nation. It matters. It matters. If the family prospers, the nation will prosper. I've said this over and over. That the church is only as strong as the families that make up the church. And the city is only as strong as the churches that make up the city. And the cities are... The nation is only as strong as the cities that make up the nation. And it all begins in the home. They're a gift from God. And they're a reward. And they're not to be neglected. They're to be protected. They're to be defended. And my goodness gracious, somebody should say amen to all of these things. It's the truth. Amen, pastor. You're telling us the truth. Amen.
Verse 4, the responsibility of the home. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. It speaks of the blessing of children being trained in godliness. Solomon pictures parents as warriors in a battle and their children as arrows that are released into the world to fight and defeat the enemies of God. Notice carefully what the text says. It doesn't say they are arrows. It says they're like arrows. It means that children need to be shaped. It means that they need to be directed. Parents, you're not their friend. You're their parent. They have other friends. They only have one set of parents. They have to be shaped. They have to be molded. They have to be directed like an arrow. And then listen to me. Listen. If you can just get this picture as parents, when you shape them and you direct them and you pour your life into them and you pour the things of God into them and then you release them out into the world for God and you see them striking the bullseye and the target, there's great joy and rejoicing in that. But they'll never hit the target if you don't shape them and you don't direct them and you don't invest in their lives. You're not their friend, you're their parent. And they need you to direct them and pour into them. And then in verse 5, the refuge of the home, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The psalmist, many think, is now middle-aged or older when he's penning these words. And he's looking back on his life and he's saying how blessed he was to have a full quiver of children. And many have debated what is a full quiver. And there's all kinds of speculation about it. Some say it's five. If that's true, some of you got some work to do. Your quiver's not full, right? But they won't be shamed. They won't be shamed when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Do you know what he's talking about there? The city gate is where all the business took place in this city. You see this imagery all through the Old Testament, especially in the book of Ruth. It's also at the city gate where often battles would begin and take place to try to get into the city walls. And Solomon's saying when your children are shaped and directed and you got a full quiver of them and you release them out into the world, when problems come on the parents, the children will arrive at the city gate and help their parents and defend them and take care of them and protect them. You listen to me, kids. God's word teaches that when your parents raise you in a godly manner, you have a responsibility when they get older to care for them and to help them. That's what he's teaching here. The mom and dad will look back in the struggles of their life, and their kids will be there to help them and to bless them. And defend them. And do you know what I think you see in verse number five? You see a picture of the family full circle. You see it? It begins with the mom and dad. Shaping and directing the blessings that God has given them. And it ends with the blessings that God has given them caring for the parents. It's a family. And this security that he's talking about in verse five is a small picture of the security that God provides. This gift of children that come back to secure and provide and care for the parents is a reminder of the one who gave his only son to provide for us so that we could be secure. By giving children as a protection and a security, the, the Lord intends for us to look at the child that he gave as the ultimate source of safety and security. Friends, if you don't have Christ in your life, 
Your spouse will never meet the deepest needs of your soul. Your children will never meet the deepest needs of your soul. Your possessions, your bank account, all that you have will never meet the deepest needs of your soul. Your home will be futile. Your home will be vain without Christ. So do you know what that means? That means you need to fill your home with his word. You need to fill it with prayer. You need to fill it with singing. And if I could just put parenthetically for a second, I know I'm going long. I'm going to stop in a second. I promise. I am under the deep conviction that singing together as a family is one of the greatest things you can do in your home. Fill your home with the songs of the Lord. In our house, there were a couple dudes who couldn't sing. And we still sang together. And do you know what it did in the awkwardness of singing together? Made it not so awkward for the hard conversations that needed to take place later. Again, that's just for free. Fill it with singing. Fill it with joy. Fill it with laughter. Fill it with worship. Fill it with love. Tell one another how proud you are of one another. How much you love one another. Fill it with Christ. You may not have all the other things that we've talked about this morning, but you can have Christ in your home who fills all in all. Unless the Lord builds the house, your labor will be in vain. Unless the Lord protects your house, your labor will be in vain. Unless the Lord is your rest, your labor will be in vain. And unless the Lord is your dependence in your parenting, your labor will be in vain. And friends, Jesus is coming back. One day, he's going to split the eastern sky, and he's going to come literally physically to this earth. And all of our building and all of our preserving will be over. And in that day, when we stand before Christ face to face, we will see whether what we built is gold and silver and precious stones that will last for eternity or it's wood, hay, and straw that'll perish. Depend upon the Lord for your home. Let's pray.